Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting. All right, um, so, get going. Uh, I, sorry, I can't, I, there's very little I can do about the fact that that projector sucks. Um, I don't know what to do, but that's the way it is. So, um, today basically will be all introductory stuff, some introductory thoughts, um, and, and sort of some stuff to keep in mind for the rest of the course, it seems to me. So, one of the first things that I think is pretty clear is that memory is a part of what people call cognitive psychology. It's a sub-part, or whatever the hell you want to say, of cognitive psychology. In fact, this course was split. Well, this course is the child, one of the children of a course that used to be called Memory and Cognition. We split it into memory and cognition as two separate courses. One of them is the course Laurie teaches, which is all about you know problem solving and, and, and representations and things like that. And then there's this course about memory, because frankly, they are big enough things themselves they can be split. So, but I think it's a sub-part of cognition. So, well, we'll start by then defining cognition. I, got a, I looked up in a bunch of books I have and things like that what cognition was. So this is, Matt, this is an old book, old, it's a classic textbook, Matlin's textbook. Um, and indeed, that's from the 1994 one because that's the one that's sitting on my shelf. That said, uh, I also have the 2012 one. I think she still has this same thing, which is cognition is a mental activity that involves the acquisition, uh, storage, and retrieval of use of knowledge. Okay, that's good. I thought, well, why don't I go back to my, my intro psych textbook? 1984. And it's Henry Gleitman. And some people took learning. I told you about Henry Gleitman. He was the guy that drove the rats around in little cars on the mazes. Remember that? So that's him. He said, what organisms know and how they know it? That's a nice simple definition. I quite like that. So that's, again, a decent definition. It's uh, nothing wrong with it. I went to Ellison Hunt, which is, in fact, the, the book when I took a course on human memory in 1985. This was the book I used. Cognitive psychology proceeds with its study of uh, mental functioning through the scientific method. I don't know. That's okay, I guess. My favorite one is from Tolving, and this is, in fact, from the paper that I gave, I put on the CMS. What are the unmistakable characteristics of immature science? It's looseness of definitions. Uh, so he's being a little bit sarcastic there, uh, but he's actually the point. So generally, though, I think we can get the idea of what cognition is, what cognitive psychology is. It's, it's, it's about knowledge and representation and using that knowledge and how it's represented. Okay? Which I think is fair enough. So... You have to think about these ideas and these sort of approaches to, to cognitive psychology in order to study memory. So here's some commonalities about those definitions that, that I could come up with. And again, those aren't four, those are four things I, I wouldn't say randomly chose because it wasn't random, it was what was on my bookshelf. Okay? 
Um, and one, a couple of me from classic textbooks and one from a classic paper, and then one just from a book I had. So looking at the commonalities of these things, it looks like you'd always have pattern recognition in there, right? I think so. I think attention's going to be a big one. Attention's because you have to attend to something to process. And these things all seem to be about processing information. It's all about knowledge about the world. It's not so much about knowledge about your internal mental life, though that's the rep what's where the representations are stored, I guess. Uh, you know, oh, I hate people. Honestly. <laughs> people, they're such bastards. Uh, IT crowd, nobody? Anybody? You want us to leave? No, no. I like you guys. <laughs> no, I get, I get paid the same if you're here or not, but uh, it'd be easier if you all left. Um, that's better. Now I can move around a little bit. This room is not conducive to my style. Little tiny vials. Walk with a freaking penguin. Okay. So knowledge with the world, it's going to be inside your, it's going to be in your internal mental life, which is what cognition is about, but it's knowledge about the world. Right? So we're talking things like autobiographical events. Autobiographical events. So things that have happened to you, things that are specific to you. So this knowledge about the world is how the world works. Right? What left and right are, what up and down are, what red is, what the capital of Vietnam is. Autobiographical events, what you had for breakfast this morning. How I almost cut my damn thumb off yesterday. You know you're cut yourself pretty badly when you realize I should put my hand above my head so the blood doesn't just squirt out everywhere because it has to be Yeah, it's good times. Then I finished making dinner because I am awesome. But <laughs> I will say my wife bandaged it up. And I'm glad she did because I was actually crying like a small child. Um, so autobiographical event, things that happen to you. So this is general stuff that we all know or we could all know. This is stuff that's just, that only you know. And I think imagery is going to be important there. Because it's, if we're representing the world, and I hate to say let's introspect for a second, because I hate introspection, but as a scientific approach to something, one can be introspective, rather than that. We imagine, excuse me, we imagine places, things, people, and images come up. So it's fair enough, I think, to include imagery in this. Okay. Some more things I think we can talk about problem solving. We're going to use this stuff to solve problems. And I think even something like creativity might have something. We can say something about creativity in this stuff. So really, there's a lot of different stuff. A lot of different...
characteristics of, of cognition and of memory. Um, you're going to need memory to acquire and store and retrieve information, to do any of these things, to do any of the, something creative to, to paint, to, to write a poem, to design a clever experiment. Right? You have to be able to store stuff, retrieve it, etc. So even something like creativity involves, which, which some people, the hardest thing about creativity is not how you measure it. I think we can all agree on some creative people. We can say that Da Vinci was a pretty creative guy. We can say that uh, Madame Curie was a pretty creative woman. We could say that uh, Albert Einstein was a pretty creative guy. We could say that, uh, who else? Let's pick somebody else. Uh, I don't know. Ernest Hemingway was a pretty creative guy. Sure. What do they all have in common? I don't know. <laughs> what's, this, what's the thing that we would all agree that makes them creative? I don't think we could. We know. That's the problem. So we know creativity is probably a thing. I just don't know how you measure it. Um, so some people have said then that, that, that you know that it's there shouldn't be any study of it because uh, shouldn't even try because it's such a different part of the human experience. Blah 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 blah. Um, you still need even to do something creative to be able to store things, retrieve things, etc. You have to, right? And I'd like somebody to come up with a way to measure creativity reliably, because I think that'd be really cool. Someone will. I'm just, I haven't seen anything yet. So I think memory then we can look at as the persistence of learning. Now, a lot of you guys took learning with me last year, but even if you didn't, no big deal. Learning is just some event at time one affects behavior at time two. That's all that is. It's a nice general definition. And when it persists, we call that memory. One could then ask, where's the, where's the line between learning, where's learning and memory begin? And my answer is, I don't know. What kind of question is that? It's like, where does sensation end and perception begin? I don't know. Who cares? It's not really that important a question. Right? It really isn't. At one end, it's easy to very extremes, right? At the extremes, for example, if I told you that the capital of Vietnam was Hanoi, which for some reason is always my running example about in, in this course, I don't know why. Um, some of you have just learned that right now, which I think is sad, but some of you have just learned that because you didn't pay attention to geography or they never taught you anything in school. So, <laughs> that's learning right now. I don't know when the hell I learned it. It was a long time ago because I'm a weirdo. And I was really, I had an atlas when I was seven and I wrecked it because I read it so much. It was an odd little boy. Very odd. I kept asking my mom when I'd see things in the news, where's this country? Where is it? And she finally went, I don't know. I'm buying you an atlas. <laughs> and then between Christmas and my birthday and Christmas, I'd actually ruined it because I'd gone through it so much. They'd buy me a new atlas. There's something wrong with me. Like, there's a lot of things wrong with me, but that's just an indication. I think my son comes by his autism, kind of honestly. Um, so, my memory, because I, I can just retrieve that, that's the other, and that's obviously memory. 
And when, if you guys, people just learned it, they always have to get up. Um, that's learning. Those two extremes are fine. In the middle, I don't know where learning is. Memory begins, I really don't care. But I think calling it the, pers the persistence of learning is a pretty good thing to call it. <coughs> it makes some sense. Pretty much everything we do as humans needs memory. Think about that. I can't, it's hard to think of anything that we do, excuse me, that is at all beyond basic physiological functions that doesn't involve memory. I'm walking right now. I had to learn to walk. I know it doesn't seem the same. It doesn't seem like I have to sit. And I don't have to sit here and actively remember how to walk. Some things are easier so, access. Some things are easier access. In fact, but probably the, the vast majority of our cognitive life is completely in, impenetrable to, to consciousness. We have no idea about all the things that we are that our nervous system is doing at any given time. Like, the, there's, a, there's a, basically a program, a walking program in your spinal column. That's basically how it works. But I had to learn how to, how to access it. Um, so something even as simple as walking, there's, there's memory involved. Something as simple as talking, and again, this is something that just seems so, it's, it's basically effortless, right? But I had to learn the meanings of all of these words. And I had to learn English grammar. I had to internalize English grammar. And again, I remember it, it's not, but it's not like it's something that is accessible to, 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 to consciousness. The same way that those of you guys that took evolutionary psych with me know about this, that I can ask you, how do you turn on a bicycle? How do you turn left? And most, the vast majority of people say, well, you turn the handlebars left. And in fact, you'll fall over if you do that. You turn a little tiny bit to the right, then left. This is why kids fall over when they learn how to ride a bicycle. They usually fall over when they take it the first turn they take. And it's because, intuitively, you imagine that what you do is you do that. And that isn't right. If you do that, you will fall over. You take a little bit to the one the other way, then you go. And no one has ever taught you that. When your mom and dad taught you to ride a bike, they never said, hey, you have to turn a little bit that way, then that way. In fact, your mom and dad probably said, just turn the handlebars. And they're actually wrong. <laughs> they're not lying to you on purpose. Maybe some of them are, and I would trust them. <laughs> but they're not, make, they're not lying to you on purpose. They, they think that too. This experiment's been done uh, asking actually elite-level cyclists how they turn, and they don't know. They say, just turn the handlebars. Nope. You fall over. It's completely inaccessible to consciousness. So you had to actually learn, think about this, you had to learn that implicitly. So you learned it and didn't know you were learning it, and now you remember it and don't know you're remembering it. Mind blown. It's pretty amazing, right? So even things that we now access pretty much implicitly, like walking or talking or reading, right? 
We know that we explicitly learned those things. We don't remember learning how to talk. We don't remember learning how to walk. We remember learning how to read. We all, I think we all probably remember that. But with a bike, with learning how to ride a bike, you literally learned it and didn't know what you were learning. And now you remember it and don't know what you're remembering. And sometimes it becomes so impenetrable consciousness, you actually you ever played a video game with somebody and they ask you, oh, if, if you, somebody comes over your house and they've never played a certain game before, uh, a lot of times this will be sports games. So, for example, someone's never played uh, like NHL 15 or 14 or 13 or 12 or 11, going back. You say, how do you shoot? And you go, I don't know. You have to look at your controller and see what you did. Because right? you have no idea how you did it. You just do it. So, so much stuff is completely impenetrable. That's impenetrable to consciousness, but you can actually take a look and see what you did. Same with the bicycle thing, you can video yourself and you can figure it out. So, all these other cognitive things I was talking about, all this problem solving and all that great stuff, creativity, we couldn't do it without our memory. It'd be impossible, right? Because again, if it's just the persistence of learning, and I think we could probably accept that that's a reasonable definition. All but the most mundane things about being a human, we had to learn. Right? And that doesn't mean that there weren't things that are hooked up in there uh, that are prepared for certain kinds of input. Language, for example. Right? Learning how to walk. Right? So things like language and, 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 and walking, which are two pretty sort of classic things. Everybody walks the same way, no matter, except the Egyptians, but thank you. But, <laughs> look like an Egyptian. But, yes, references to songs from 1986. Um, actually, it's older than that. But uh, everybody in the world over walks the same way. But we all had to learn to walk. Our parents had to basically, you know, teach us kind of thing. You, you kind of learn it yourself. You kind of learn it with your folks. And then the greatest thing is watching a baby the first time they walk because they kind of implicitly figure out something. The quicker you move, the less likely you are to fall. Right? They walk like this. That's great. But someone had to sort of teach you. You sort of taught yourself, but you learned to walk. Same thing with language. You learn language. Now, everybody on earth doesn't speak the same language. No. But we all, all our languages have the same characteristics. Right? So they all have nouns and verbs and adjectives and all that stuff. They all have grammar, basically. So, and we're ready to learn languages, but we have to learn. The content is something we have to learn. So that's still memory. So all these other cognitive things we do, we could not do really without memory. So, well, I think I started out by saying, Memory is kind of a subset of cognitive psychology. There wouldn't be any cognitive psychology without memory. <coughs> right? There wouldn't be any cognitive psychology without memory. It's the core of cognition. By all means, leave your chalk here, your markers. That's great. Yeah.
questions so far? Yeah? Okay. Pretty basic stuff, I think. Okay, some questions we can ask about memory. Now, why would we want to ask questions? Well, to quote Mr. Data, all science begins with the statement, I do not know. In the episode, I forget the name of it. That's sad, really. I used to know everything about that. Um, maybe it's good. Maybe it's actually a good sign. I'm forgetting Star Trek for It's maybe a good sign. I think it might be. Let's think of it as a good sign. Um, it's the one where he runs into Nagilum. Anyway, he's a big object, big guy in space. Yeah. So, here's some questions we can ask. Are memories permanent? I mean, this, these questions are things I think well, I would like you to sort of keep in mind throughout the course. Are memories permanent? Now, if they're permanent, <coughs> it might be the case that maybe you misfiled them when you can't access them anymore. Are they permanent? Well, you might think to yourself, is it sensible for them to be permanent? Um, physiological, right? Is, is that a possibility? Well, there's a, we have a lot of neurons. So it's probably possible. There's going to be, there has to be a limit on what we can remember because it's a physical item, your brain. But would we ever reach that limit? Not until we merge with machines in the forever, right? Nobody caught that. It's like, I'm not sure we're really going to merge with machines in the forever. Um, so that's a good question, though. It's an interesting question. Where are memories stored? Well, generally, I believe it's in the brain. (laughs) Is there a memory center in your brain? Not really. Are there structures that are important in your brain? For well, all the structures in your brain are important. By the way, are the structures in your brain that are important for memory? Mm-hmm. Hippocampus, right? Hippocampus is probably the most important one. One of the things that hippocampus seems to do. This is what it's generally becoming clear. Note that all the hedging there generally becoming <laughs> clear that what hippocampus does is it somehow. Recreates the pattern of activation in your cortex that you had when you learned something, when you recall it. That looks, that's, people have been saying that now for maybe 20 years, that, that was their guess, and there's more and more data now coming out suggesting that's probably true. The problem is, of course, still all that stuff, and it's all about protein expression, and it's really complicated, and I only half understand it myself. Um, there's stuff coming out, rat stuff coming out that's that making that, we talked about it in learning last year, it's becoming clear that, at least in rats, that's the case, so generally it's probably the case in us too. Um, so they're stored all, it's probably distributed all throughout your nervous system. But, or your brain. That said, uh, we don't really know yet for sure, we're not even close to knowing for sure. 
If you figure that out, that's one of those Nobel Prize things. That's one of those Nobel Prize things. It really is. That's up there with the binding problem. We talked about that in Brain Behavior last year, or every year. And the n-gram, how the n-gram is the idea of how a memory is stored. If, if we can if you figure out either of those, you will win a Nobel Prize. And I want you to thank me because I said that now, then you can thank me. I always say that. I want one day someone, it's bound to probably not. Okay. Can I improve my memory? Ah, there's a question. Can I improve my memory? I can tell you, in some ways you can't improve it. Luminosity. <laughs> okay, or all these brain training games. They do, um, uh, I believe the technical term is sweet bugger all. Um, they, okay. Well, did you see that uh, paper about Portal 2 versus those like luminosity? No, I didn't. Where you they, tell. they compared, like, they had people either play the luminosity game or the Portal 2 game. Yeah. And people who played Portal did better <laughs> on all of their measures. Nice. I mean, do video games have an effect on your... Yeah, of course they do, because everything has an effect on your nervous system and your, and your cognition. And, for example, doing something as a very spatially loaded task, like playing a first-person shooter, has been shown to improve. Is this right? Because you probably know more about this than I do. Maddie's doing her thesis on this stuff. Um, it will improve spatial ability. Is that correct? I playing Call of Duty? Spatial, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. That's that yes. Spence paper, right? Yes. So, I mean, there are... That's not surprising. Can you do brain, these brain training games do anything? Probably not. Do they do some small thing? Sure. Are they, do they prevent Alzheimer's? <laughs> do they prevent just general cognitive slowing? Probably not. Not groundbreaking. No. No, there's nothing there. There's nothing interesting and, and amazing there. Go, Portal 2 is probably a better game anyway. It certainly is. I think it's because people also enjoy playing it. Yeah, and because there's the Cave Johnson voice, which I think just... <laughs> brings a whole new level of awesome to that game. Um, so those kind of things. Can you improve your memory through hypnosis? There's another way, right? Well, we couldn't do. The suspect couldn't, or the, the witness couldn't remember the license plate, so we hypnotized him. And then he made one up. Um, no, it doesn't improve your memory. So the things that we think might improve our memory, uh, uh, I'll take these herbal supplements. They don't do a thing. They make your urine full of Herbal supplements. So, what's in the herbal supplements and vitamins do? They make your urine really expensive urine. Um, that's basically the case. So, but could you improve your memory through learning how your memory works? Yeah. So, if you understand how your memory works, if you understand how your memory works, You can take advantage of that and, and improve your performance on various memorial tasks, right? That's true. There's, there's no argument there. There are memory tricks. There's mnemonics. Right? There are all kinds of little mnemonic devices you can use. They've been around forever. You know, literally Aristotle wrote about some of these ways that he would remember things. So you can improve your memory by understanding how your memory works. You're not going to improve it by playing some stupid little game on your on your on your like a Nintendo 3DS. Hey, 
it's going to hurt you. But don't think you're doing anything that's going to help you either. You know, if your mom or dad are doing it and they're having fun, just, you know, maybe don't destroy their lives and tell them that, I don't think it destroy their lives, but don't, I wouldn't, you know, doesn't, they're not hurting anybody. <laughs> so they're having fun. On the other hand, if they start to ramble on about this, show them the, the, the open letter that about, I think it was 200 neuroscientists signed recently saying, this isn't doing anything. Yeah. Why would you remember better? Yeah. Make, well, think about this. From an evolutionary standpoint, first of all, it makes complete sense because you want to remember really, really bad stuff so you can avoid that situation in the future. Yes. So that's functionally. We can look at it from a mechanistic point of view, well, first, then from a neuroscience kind of point of view. Hippocampus is right next door to amygdala, so we're going to get more activation. Okay. Finally, let's look at it from a just cognitive mechanism type thing. Um, more intense memories in general are remembered better than less intense memories. So really, really, really happy moments are remembered well too. You should remember really good stuff and really bad stuff. The, the, the mundane crap in the middle, who cares? Right? So um, very emotional things in general are remembered better. And that may, that may just simply be because we, there's, there are more what are called retrieval cues. So your emotional states are a little retrieval cue. It's just an extra retrieval cue. Yeah, Matt? What was the You're saying retrieval cues? Yes. What about when you just like, remember something? Like out of nowhere. You haven't thought about it in years. That happens, That's sure. That's weird. Yeah. That's probably... It's one of those cases I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that. Um, it's probably the case that stuff just comes to mind because there is some retrieval cue that's similar. It's, this probably explains deja vu, for example. Right? You know deja vu where you're walking around, you walk around, you walk around a corner and go, oh, I've done this before. And I don't mean like here because I've been doing it every day for 11 years. Um, but you walk into a part of town you've never been to, for example. And you go... Uh oh, oh, this is weird. This was in a dream or something. And actually, it's probably just that you're remembering something that really just, that is just similar. So it's probably the same kind of thing. It's probably that it could be almost anything, right? You have the same, you can cut your thumb another time. When I cut my thumb yesterday, for example, I immediately remembered cutting my, this other thumb <laughs> um, about 20 years more than that, because you were born in, like 25 years ago. And then I suddenly remembered like what our kitchen looked like in Toronto. Now, obviously, that's a retrieval cue situation. But on the other hand, you're talking about just like you're just sitting around at home one day, and suddenly it's like, oh, I remember repairing a door in Cornerbrook. <laughs> which I don't think I've ever done. Um, and again, I think that's just a retrieval cue. I, that's just a guess, though. That's a guess. Yeah, I don't know why. That's, you know... It's hard to study. It would be hard. It's hard to make things like Deja Vu, for example, or something like what you're talking about, which I believe has a name that I don't know. Um, it's hard to make those things happen in the lab. Making Deja Vu happen in the lab is almost impossible. Right? It's hard even to make... Think about, think about something like this, what's called feeling of knowing. 
Uh, it's a metacognitive term. It's tip of the tongue phenomenon. So I've got to say to you, and you know how this happens? You're playing Sig Trivia Pursuit, and you go, I know I know this, but I can't remember it. But you totally know you know it. And you go, ah, ah, what is it, what is it, what is it? That's a hard, hard thing to induce in a lab. Yeah, go Doesn't sometimes stress have a great deal to do with access to memory? Oh, totally. I mean, it's going to be... Is it because, you know, when sure. students, sure. for example, sitting at a, at a desk yeah. trying to think something they can't, Mm -hmm. As soon as they walk out the door <laughs> and the pressure is off, then they remember? Yeah, oh yeah. I've, we've all, I've, who here has not had that experience? <laughs> yeah, no one puts their hand up, but we've all had that experience. Um, that's up there with the, you think of a really good insult to some asshole, as you, just as you've left them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had the perfect comeback. Should I run after him? Because <laughs> instead I said, yeah, well, you too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and that's totally true, right? I mean, feeling of knowing is an interesting thing that we can, we can make happen, but it's really hard to make happen. Um, because that's also interesting because it's metacognition. You know, you know the answer. What you do is you try to find things that people would know. It's usually done with geography terms. And it's usually capitals of countries, things like that. Because a lot of times, you, if I said, like, how confident would you be that you could pick... How many people here know the capital of Pakistan? Don't say it if you know it. Okay. How many people here think they could no, but think they could name it if I give you a multiple choice test? Okay. So that and that's how you do it. So you got to find something that is inaccessible. Most people don't know, but if given a list, they can say how confident they are. And sometimes you can then get the thing where people go, oh, I do know this. So you're actually getting what's called feeling of knowing. It's Islamabad, Again, I was an odd little boy. Um, so can we improve it? Like I said, knowing how your memory works will improve it. There also are tricks like uh, uh, you know, mnemonics and stuff, totally. Um, well, we talked about that. Where are they stored? How are they stored? Yeah, again, probably patterns of activation. I don't know. If you forget stuff, is it gone? So remember, it's persistent or permanent. And the tale of this is, if I forget something, is it actually gone? Now, it isn't always. Joe just talked about this great example. You walk into the exam and you go, oh, shit. Now I know what that part of the brain was. I should have filled that out on the gut of the diagram. I can't believe I couldn't remember it. Now I can. That's the corpus callosum. How could I have forgotten that? Oh, well. I lose two points. Actually, four. Because I didn't also name a function for it. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, so that's... that. Ha we, we know that sometimes stuff isn't gone. But there's other, there's other times, like, is it actually gone? I remember my phone number from when I was a kid drunk. It was the first phone number I had to learn. It was 2235260. I remember that. It's the first one. But I can't for life remember my phone number in Toronto when I lived there for four and a half years in graduate school. It starts with a five, is all I can remember. Five, six, something. It's gone. 
I can remember the, the phone number of the pizza place we used to call. <laughs> <laughs> that was easy. That was five six five four 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 four. The guy would answer. He go, "Pizza Gigi, hang on a second. We want farm. Okay, twenty minutes. Same guy. I bet if you called right now, that guy would answer the phone. <laughs> Even it's like twenty odd years ago, he could be dead. Um, what a horrible thing to say. Um, I hope he's alive and well and still being gruff with people on the phone. Uh, yeah, I don't know where that, that's gone. That phone number's gone. I can remember the, all every other phone number I've ever had. Oh, I don't know. phone number in Cornerbrook. They have repressed a great deal of the Cornerbrook experience. Yeah, I might not remember that one either. No, I don't think I remember that one either. I think I could probably pick that one out, though. I could probably get that feeling of knowing that different time. The one from when I lived in Toronto and grad school is gone. Like, it's just gone. It seems to be. So, is it, re- but is it really? Or is it just that it's been misfiled somehow? Okay. Yep. I was going to say, a lot of times, like, when I forget phone numbers, I can type it on the phone, but, right. like, I don't really, like, can't say what the number is. Totally. Oh yeah. Well, then that's just procedural memory, right? It's like a password. Sometimes, you know, you type the password in, but you couldn't actually, you know, say it out loud. Or it would be more, would be more effort to say it out loud than it would be to just type it into your computer. And of course, with phone numbers now, they're becoming less and less relevant because we don't, do we don't, we, you know, I don't know my wife's cell phone. Anymore. Her, her number is call Isabel's iPhone. Mm-hmm. I just don't know her. I think it's seven zero five two zero six or something. That's all I remember. And the rest of it, I don't know. I could probably pick that one out though, because I've given it to enough people who've called. So is stuff really gone? I think probably sometimes it is. How do we know that though? I don't know that we can know that. I don't know that we can know that. Here's a question that I find fascinating. Is, is our memory at all similar to memory in other species? Right? As I said the other day, my, my major in, in, in grad school was animal cognition, and my minors were comparative psychology and human cognition. So that's my thing. I'm interested in that. So this is a really neat question. And I guess I think the answer very very broad strokes is yes, sometimes. It's not always. I need no There are things that we can do that no other animal can do. And there are things that other animals can do that we can't do, by the way, but we're pretty impressive. Cognitively, humans are pretty impressive. Right? Compared to, say, Clark's Nutcrackers, which are pretty impressive too, store 30,000 seeds in the fall, recover 25,000 of them six months later in a 40 kilometer radius. Pretty impressive. You know, we do, we just invent things to write stuff down. We invent a writing system and maps. We invent GPSs. Right? It's like humans can't fly by flapping their arms, so we invent airplanes. We're pretty impressive. I've never seen a Clark's Nutcracker run a civilization or drive a car. <laughs> you know, so nonetheless, there are going to be commonalities, and there are probably more commonalities than you would expect. The biggest difference is that they're not verbal and we are. 
right? Even if our memories aren't tied to language, which is an open question, actually, it seems like almost the interface for our memories is tied to language. When you remember something, you try to remember something, you think in words, right? You say, you say to yourself, so what is that? That's, uh, like, it's almost like the front end of memory in humans is language. Interestingly, though, babies have memories. Nonverbal autistic people have memories. And they can certainly show you that. Huh. So that's... The language thing is kind of hard to separate uh, out from, 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 from memory in general. So for us... If we're gonna, if we're doing it purely by introspection, which of course we won't be. Right. See, we want to study this scientifically. So, yeah, I can sit here and say it seems like this. Oh, sorry, it seems like it's uh, linguistic language is important, etc. Except that what I think and what I feel don't matter. So we want to study it scientifically, but of course, as you know, science is about measurement, control, and prediction. <coughs> and it's about experimentation. So we're going to have to run experiments, and that's the, the vast majority of this class, of course, is going to be me talking about ideas and then backing them up with data. That's what we try to do. Um, so it's going to be about experiments, and it's about cause and effect relationships. So. When we do experiments, we find out about cause and effect relationships, right? The biggest problem here is um, how do we measure something we can't kick? Something you can't touch? It's an expression that you can't kick it is an expression my friend Rob uses all the time. And it's what he's talking about when he's talking about things like memory. He's talking about things like more problematically, consciousness, which is something you really can't kick. Because Rob always says, if you can't kick it, it ain't real. Rob, he's a professor of psychology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, we went to school together. And he's got a point, at least scientifically, if I can't touch something, if I can't measure it, it's not, I don't, it may be very interesting, but I can't measure it, so I can't really care about it. There's a lot of little things left we can't measure. Creativity, I mentioned, <laughs> this is a tough one. Consciousness is tough. Right? But memory itself is even on a surface is tough because what is memory? The persistence of learning. Okay, that's true. How should we me measure that? We're not never gonna we're never gonna directly measure memory. What we're gonna do is we're gonna operationalize, right? We're going to measure variables which we believe will be correlated with memory. And this is almost always what we do in any behavioral science at all. When you think about it, like when you're measuring, think about personality. Yeah? Okay? So you're measuring aggression. Are you actually measuring aggression? No, you're measuring what score someone gets on a, on a questionnaire. Or you're measuring someone's behavior when they, how many times they will shucks. 
You're not actually measuring aggression. Same sort of thing here. So we're going to find things that are correlated with memory or are the result of memory. So things like the percentage of words recalled. So I give you a list of words. It will be a lot of experiments like this. pretty standard procedure. I give you a list of words, and then I have you recall them. And then I see what percentage you got correct. Or it could be like how many word fragments you've completed. See, this is obviously about memory, isn't it? Because it's recall. It's, it's, it's what we call, and we'll talk a lot about this in the course, explicit memory. I have told you, I have given, I've given you a list of words that I'm asking you to recall. Okay? On the other hand, brown chalk seems strangely persistent. Okay, trying to write without your thumb. Um, I give you a list of words, and one of those words could be assassin. Okay? And then I give you this. <coughs> give you that, and I say, fill in the blanks. Do you have to have just seen the word assassin to fill that in properly? seen it, but you know the weird thing is? It helps. That's the, the reason I'm using the assassin, by the way, is it's the example that's always used. I don't know why, but the first papers that talked about what this is called priming, they used the word assassin, and now everyone uses the word assassin in their as their example. I used it once in a paper that one was told, and I had the word, it said, you know, serious, I had A-S-S, and then the blanks, they told me to change it to something less vulgar. <laughs> Just, everybody does that Endel told me I'm not Endel told me so it's like, come on well, hold yourselves it was the same editor by the way that told me to change the name of my pigeons don't call them subjects call them participants and I said they're pigeons I don't think they feel offended and they weren't really they didn't sign up voluntarily we ordered them <laughs> I said, I won't call them subjects, but I'm, I'm compromised. I'm calling them animals. You have a problem with that? I said, eh, okay, that's okay. APA says we shouldn't use the word subjects. And it's like, but that's for people! Anyway. This is cool. Because this kind of memory, it actually shows memory because you've got, you've seen something, and then you've learned that was on the list, and it persists. By the way, this persists for week where remembering the word assassin goes away like in a week you probably won't remember the word assassin if you get got that list and that was on the list but a week later if I give you this word fragment uh, compared to another word fragment that didn't wasn't on the list you'll still feel more likely to fill that one up than the other than you haven't seen indeed um, and that's a different kind of memory because it turns out that like if you've got really severe some kind of brain damage you know, the case of HM or a lot of other people that have amnesia. They don't remember the words at all. They, they can't do recall. But there were fragments completion looks just like yours. 
cool. So it's a different kind of memory. So at first it doesn't look like memory, but in fact, it certainly is. It's just it's memory you're not aware you have. Yeah, it's very cool. You look at the types of errors people make, too. This could tell us something really interesting about how something is stored. So if I had, if one of the words I had you remember was president. Okay? And now, instead of doing recall, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do recognition. Recognition is a little easier than recall. Right? Because you've got the items actually in front of you, and some of them actually were on the list. It, it just, the ultimate retrieval cue for an item is the item itself. So, in fact, if I give you the list of words, and then, so one of the words was present. On our list of certain of the ones that you heard or saw or whatever, and we have words that, we have words like king, prime minister, president, boss, general. If your errors are to those things, so only president was on the list, those other ones were. And the other words I have, I have president as well, but I got resident, hesitant, and other hesitant words. If your mistakes or errors are to the words that are conceptually like president, like a boss, as compared to words that sound like president, that should tell us something. It should tell us how we've encoded the item, right? It tell, are we encoding it semantically, so that's about the meaning, or are we encoding it uh, not so uh, semantically and uh, the word's gone. I know it's in, I, I do know that this is in there somewhere. Not semantically. Acoustically. There you go. Neat thing is I can actually manipulate the, the, the task to make you encode it acoustically. It's easy. I can manipulate the task to make you encode it semantically. How do I make you encode it acoustically? I have you count the number of syllables. How do I make you encode it semantically? I have you rate the, 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 the word on a scale from 1 to 7 of units for its pleasantness. That just makes you think of the word. So I can look for the kinds of errors you make. My questions? Okay. Now, here's some analogies to how a memory might work. And you'll these will come up when you read stuff that I post or when you read stuff for your um, articles, uh, like your articles for your papers, whatever, or just in the lectures. One of them, the classic one, of course, is the wax tablet. Right? The idea that you write on something... It's uh, the tabula rasa, right? <coughs> Another one's a sieve. You know, a sieve, you know, you shake things through it and some things stay here and other things fall through. Well, you want to think then the stuff that goes through and goes to the ground or whatever, that's stuff you didn't encode, you didn't store. And the stuff that stays in the sieve, that's the stuff that you remember. It's not a bad analogy. Libraries, then I like library because it's like we've stored information and we can go re and we can go retrieve it, don't we? Just like a library. 
So the library analogy is kind of decent because, in fact, what's a library have? It has a card catalog, or now we just use, I think they still call it the card catalog, even though it's online. Right? So it knows where all the books are, and then you can go get the book. We do some of that, right? We remember something. Because, first of all, I could ask you, but metacognition, do you know how to do something? So I could say, do you know how to take a derivative? So calculus. Why do you go, I didn't learn calculus. No, I know I don't know that. And others go, yeah, I could probably do that. But it's like the book's hidden away in a strange part of the library. Might have to go dig it out. <coughs> so the library's not bad. Workbench, I like this idea. Library's about long-term storage. The workbench is about short-term storage. Stuff you're working on right now. So back to the calculus example, having the, the, the thing in front of you and actually doing the, the, doing the, the math problem, that's on the bench right now. You're using your tools, your, they're like cognitive tools, to solve the problem. All right, that's good. Network. Now we start to think more and more about networks. Uh, you hear more and more about networks as we get more experience with networks. So the idea that you have uh, almost a router type system send, uh, that, that, that sends packets of information in and out, kind of like how the internet works. And the idea that neural networks are being used to store memories is actually a pretty reasonable idea. Filing cabinet, people don't even use filing cabinets anymore. I don't know. People have stuff on computers now. But again, it's kind of like the library. You can look something up, it's alphabetical, so it's easy to find something, whatever. Um, the computer is probably the one that you'll be the most familiar with because you all have computers. And the computer analogy is reasonable as well because it doesn't, it's not bad for how a nervous system works. It isn't great either, but it's, it's probably. For me, it's better than any of these. Well, Workbench is pretty good, too. The thing about computers is stuff is stored away, right? And then it's brought into RAM, consciousness, when it's needed. And then you shut it down, right? So the, you might bring up a program, so you bring up uh, Excel to, to do something with a spreadsheet. Then you both pull up the file, that's the memory, so you have something that's a tool that you've learned how to use, then you pull up the information, you use it, you solve the problem, and then you close it. So I kind of like that. Anything that helps you understand it better, I think is okay. These all have strengths and weaknesses, these, all these different um, analogies. So what's common about these things? Well, memory is seen as a thing, a kind of a space almost. Okay. Pretty much all of these things have three important components, encoding, storage, and retrieval. Something is put away, 
uh, something, well, it's encoded, so it's turned from, think of a wax tablet. You, got, you write down words. There's patterns, scratches, and wax, but you're now encoding the word, spoken word. A uh, computer, you can type information in, whatever. It is then stored somehow. Could be on uh, the, 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 the hard drive of your computer. Could be in the cloud. Okay. And then we can retrieve that information that we've stored, decode it, and then we have what we call a memory. Now, some of those analogies have more of those things than others. Go down. storage retrieval important really in all of these sort of analogies. And really, when we talk about memory, we're going to talk about encoding storage and retrieval a lot. There's some attributes of memory, some things that we can talk about. First of all, acquisition. This is the learning part of it, really. That's the learning part of it. Stuff is then represented somehow. That's the encoding part. Right. And you'll, you call direct experiences, things that are happening right now, we call that primary memory. And then previous states, uh, working on stuff with other information is secondary memory. That's a very general way to categorize things. It's also a way that William James categorized things in the first textbook of psychology ever, called Principles of Psychology, in 1890, a book you should all read. And we still say those things today. William James uh, got a lot of stuff right. He got a lot of stuff wrong, too. But he was making it up as he was going along. So we should give William James some credit. He was probably the first cognitive psychologist. So that's pretty cool. And this kind of speaks to what you asked about men. Um, he said that we can recall things or retrieve things rather in three different ways. We can recollect the past intentionally. Right? We can also do it unintentionally. So I think that's sort of what you were talking about in some respect. Um, memory can also show up without awareness. And that is a, a great example here. And again, to say that we still say these things today. This is a great example of this. This priming of implicit memory uh, measured through word fragment completion. We are, we, 
you can actually tell people that those words were on the list or you don't have to, but the way you do those experiments is when you present those words, so you present, first of all, you present a list of words. Then you have do it for the distractor task. Because you don't want people repeating the words themselves. Distractor tasks are fun. We usually use fun things like, here's a map of the world, name all the countries, and have people label them, and we tell them we're interested in their geographic knowledge. Because what that does is it makes people take it seriously. If you want to make people take it really seriously, you say, Here's a map of the world. In five minutes, name, label as many countries as you can. By the way, the average 10-year-old can name 20. <laughs> that people take it really seriously then. But sometimes that ethics panel says, you're making people feel inferior. <laughs> because they're all... So, or you can tell people the ultimate one you can tell people, usually you can't do this, is uh, this is highly correlated with IQ. <laughs> That <laughs> really, that's a, that people take it really seriously. So for five minutes, these, these people are labeling a map, and you don't use it at all, except you, you really shouldn't even look at it. It's not really ethical, but you do, because it's funny. And you see things like people naming countries like London. <laughs> I saw that once, and they had it in Germany. <laughs> but that was at U of T, the Harvard of the North. Um, what else did I see? Africa. That's not a country. It's also not Central Asia. <laughs> so, uh, you have a bit of fun. Flags of the world's another good one. Or capitals of countries. Things like that. Or you do another great distractor task is getting people to count backwards. Because it's hard. We already count backwards. And you might say, by twos, you say, yeah, by seventeens, is yeah, backwards from the number 10,000, out loud, by the way, uh, by 17s, go. And they look at you, 10,000, 9, uh, 9,983, 9, that, now the whole list is gone. Excellent. It's all gone from primary memory, right? So, we do that, and then we do the um, recall. You say to somebody, okay, remember the list of words? I'd like to recall all of this. So they start to think they're now we'll do another distractor task. Now, we'll say, I'm going to give you some work called word fragments. I'd like you to fill in the blank, please. And you flash these at them every five seconds. Most people don't even notice that those words were some of the half the words, the words on the list. Most people don't even notice. And you know what? The people that do notice, people who do notice, they don't do any better than the people who don't notice. So you can actually tell them they were on the list, or you can tell them they were, or you don't tell them. It doesn't make a difference. No, it doesn't matter. So it's funny because what you can do then is you can then compare. So this is memory then without awareness. That's what, that, that's what this is. This is called priming implicit memory. It's memory without awareness. And in fact, most of our memory is memory without awareness. So talk about that. Most of the stuff we remember, we don't know that we know, we remember. Questions about that? Memory is reconstructed, or very often. 
So you don't actually relive the experience itself that you're remembering. You reconstruct that experience. And this is something else we'll talk about for the course, is that your memory is actually pretty unreliable. It's not a video camera. It's more like a, an abstract of a paper, more than anything. Except it's an abstract of the paper that sometimes has mistakes in it. I have friends, back, uh, old colleagues from back in, when I was at Morning University of Newfoundland, and I think it was four guys, and they all went on a golfing trip. So they were flying to Halifax, and then they were going, I don't know, golfing somewhere. And on the plane that same day were a whole bunch of WWE wrestlers because they had just done a show in Cornerbrook and they were then flying the next day to do a show in Halifax, right? My friend Tom is convinced he sat beside one of the wrestlers. And my friend Roy is convinced he sat beside one of the wrestlers. But the thing is, there's three guys. There's also, I think John was there. John Ashton. John's dead, sadly. Two of them sat together. Oh, my friends. And you know what, Dash, eight. Two seats here, two seats here. So only one of those guys must have sat beside the wrestler, but two of them are sure they did. And John didn't know who, which one it was. One of them is wrong. Like, he's just, he must be wrong. He has to be. But they both are convinced they sat beside, like it was a Hulk Hogan or something, it was like in the 80s. Yeah, man. Oh, you're just doing this? So your memory's reconstructed. Like they, they, they all, they all agree that they met. Like I said, I think it was Hulk Hogan. Uh, it was somebody important like that, like important wrestling, for such a thing. Um, so right, they, they all agree on that. And that's who's on the plane. They all agree the time they went and the kind of plane it was. And when, but the one thing that they can't agree on, and one of them must be wrong, is that who sat beside the wrestler and talked to him for an hour and a half. This happens all the time. You can argue with friends. Actually, your, your memories, you're convinced you're right. You're both convinced you're right. And one of you must be wrong. You can't both be right in these kind of cases, right? So what I'm saying, in essence, very generally of that is, memory is a pretty multidimensional phenomenon. And there are many forms of it. Everything from knowing what the capital of Vietnam is, to knowing how to ride a bike, Knowing what, what you had for breakfast and knowing what breakfast is. Knowing what you had for breakfast is autobiographical, isn't it? It's episodic. It's called episodic memory. It's about episodes about your life. You know what you had for breakfast. Two crumpets and a cup of coffee. Really, kind of a cup and a half of coffee because it's only a half. The first cup of coffee, I forgot to change the little pot in our courage machine, so it was a reused. <coughs> Look at that going, this is really weak. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't really drinking coffee so much as water and cream. Um, <laughs> delicious. 
breakfast is, is a fact about the world, just like knowing what the capital of Vietnam is. Those are two different things. We call that semantic memory. That's knowledge about the world. And in fact, when people have amnesia, they hardly ever have problems with semantic memory. It's not the situation that people end up not having semantic memory. People don't go, I know what I had for breakfast, I just don't know what breakfast is. It's almost, how would that work, right? What is cat? <laughs> My cat's name is Steve. What is cat? No. That's, how would that work, right? So people very often get amnesia when they bump in the head or a stroke or some sort of brain injury, but they don't lose semantic knowledge. Usually they lose episodic knowledge. And the interesting thing is they usually don't lose episodic knowledge that they've already gained. They just can't form new episodic memories. Right. Knowing how to ride a bike is an entirely different thing. That's called procedural memory. Just like the, 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 the pattern of casting, like you were saying, knowing the pattern of typing in for the phone number. Oh, that procedural. So, how are we going to investigate memory? Well, there's a few things that are going to come up. First of all, there's always a forgetting curve, and it always looks the same, uh, if there is going to be one. So if there is a forgetting curve, it's always going to look the same. It's going to be a curve that looks sort of like this. Most of the forgetting happens quickly, early on, and then it fades, then it asymptotes. Now, it's going to, the, the slope's going to change, of course, but it'll look like that. If there is forgetting. On the other hand, something like talking with the work writing completion, there really isn't a whole lot of forgetting, which is kind of cool. So if you look, if you had a fragment completion, you might have, it's basically flat. This could be over a week, it's basically flat. And recall is you've got a classic forgetting curve that was discovered by Emmy. There's something called the power law of practice, which basically says that as you practice something, you get better at, it, at remembering the thing, and the improvement is exponential. No, that's wrong, sorry. The improvement, it actually looks like the exact opposite of the uh, forgetting curve. It's like this. It eventually asymptotes, because you can't get any better than perfect. Can't get any better. Perfect. The neat thing is, you actually maybe you can, but you can't show it. So you overlearn it. So it's the opposite learning? Yeah, you can call it a learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And an interesting thing that happens is something called encoding specificity, where you will learn something and code it in a certain situation and recall it again in that situation, but you'll have trouble recalling it in other situations. It'll be, or it'll be a little harder. 
one of the important skills that you learn in university is being able to integrate knowledge across classes, right? I mean, that's something that happens, and it happens more, especially as you, you, know, you specialize. I mean, probably almost everyone in here is a psych major. And what ends up happening is, as time goes by, you learn to kind of turn it, not turn this off, but to relate stuff to other stuff from other classes. It just happens. But especially like in first year, it's like remembering things from one class or another class, they're, they're almost compartmentalized, right? One of the ways we do things, free recall, <coughs> sort of the classic. So it's like, please recall the list of words. We can use recognition. I talked about that. Recognition's e easier to recall. Why use sentence verification? Is this a sentence? And we could talk a lot about priming, and that's what we talked about here. Implicit memory, this is priming implicit memory. So there's a lot of different things, different phenomena we talk about. Uh, finally, um, we can look at practice effects. Obviously, the more you practice, the better you get at something. We can talk about imagery. So is it easier to remember a word like building or cable, then it is to remember a word like freedom or dignity, and the answer is yes. Now, the question one can ask that is, is it because it's easier to imagine building and, was it what I said? Table. Table. Um, then freedom and dignity. It is, is that because it's easier to imagine a picture than, uh, anybody here imagine a picture of freedom or dignity? Kind of hard things to imagine. But is that because you can't imagine those words or because those words are a little less common than words like building and table? Well, there's been an uh, ongoing argument about this between two psychologists who are now retired, by the way, from, uh, who are at the University of Western Ontario, who have offices across the hall from each other, which is kind of cool. Um, and finally, as I said before, we'll look at errors and what kind of errors people make. On that note, you're probably packing in for the day. Thank you, guys. And I will see you in the future.
is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.